expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights, brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. Good morning, everybody, and welcome to this very special APSA Insight series. My name is Bruce Whitfield. And before you think that I've had a throwback to the 1970s and have donned myself a very attractive cravat, uh, it's a face mask. I mean, who would have thought as we started in 2020 that we would be allowed to go into a bank looking like this? It's been a fundamentally odd year, hasn't it? It's got to be tucked there just in case somebody comes into the room and I need to make it everything safe. It's kind of weird. But 2020 has turned out to be that year, hasn't it? That year that we just wish would be over and done with. Let's hope 2021 is better. What has been brilliant in 2020 has been commodity prices. They've been nothing short of extraordinary as the year has progressed. Virtually every commodity has gone up. We're going to look at that in lots of detail today on this APSA Insight series. Expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights brought to you by APSA Corporate Investment Banking on 702 and Cape Talk, making today's broadcast possible. Thank you for joining us. Your questions. Now, you know how MS Teams works by now. You may not have known in uh, April this year how it worked. You may have had absolutely no clue, but you've had to adapt. You've had to uh, become familiar with the new technologies that have been foisted upon us over the last couple of months. You've got the little bar down the side of your screen. Any questions that you've got about the resources market? Any questions that you've got about Teresa Resources, for example? Ilya Graulich from Teresa Resources is joining us this morning. Any questions you have on commodities, commodity prices, on the politics of the continent, on the difficulties facing the logistics issues facing the continent, absolutely anything that is linked to this resources market, those questions are coming through to us this morning. About quarter to the hour, we'll take those questions and uh, give us your name, tell us who the question is aimed at, and uh, I will do my best to get through all questions this morning. As I said to you, my name is Bruce Whitfield, and I've got for you a fabulous panel Shirley Weber, she is the head of coverage of natural resources and energy at APSA CIB. She is there. Tawanda Madondo is a senior banker in natural resources and energy. He's there as well. Ilya Graulich's thumb uh, is there as well. There's Ilya Graulich. He is with Teresa Resources. He's head of investor relations and media relations and chief executive of African Source Markets. Bevan Jones is with us this morning. Nothing short of extraordinary. I mean, Ilya Graulich, you were a journalist many, many years ago when you had a proper job. Uh, you were wish that resources markets had been this vibrant, this exciting, this fraught, this complex, this enticing, I'm sure, when you were a journalist. But in those days, things were easy, Um, certainly from a reporter's perspective. Just the dynamics of this market and how 2020 has shaped it. I'd be curious as to your perspectives. Sure. Um, Funny you mentioned my previous career as a journalist. It was the beginning of the major bull run in the commodities when I, when I started. Um, gold had just come off from, from its highs. Gold was frustrating at $250, and nobody had heard of the word copper. Um, then suddenly China decided to go for a growth spurt, and for the next 20 years, people were searching for copper, and we saw copper prices um, go absolutely crazy. We saw Billiton, who at that stage listed in London, and shareholders were frustrated at their share price being less than a pound, becoming the behemoth that they are these days, becoming the biggest iron ore supply into China, becoming or still being a major copper supplier as part of then BHP Billiton and now back to, to BHP and South 32. So commodity prices are strong, and I think they're strong to stay. Um, world growth, as much as we are seeing a dip at this present moment in world growth, um, will continue. 
Um, and what is important to understand is that while the demand remains very robust in terms of this economic growth that I just addressed, I think supply is becoming complex. Um, if you just look at copper, for example, the grades around the world are reducing. No new copper deposits have been found with significant grades. And if you do find uh, significant grades in copper, for example, um, you're dealing with political issues that are very complex to understand. Plus, an overlay of logistics, lack of infrastructure, means that the simple scenario of getting copper and then moving it to your end supplier is becoming more complex. Um, the easy resources have been found, but if you believe in the demand side of matters, um, we need to find more supply, and that, find, uh, that supply needs to be financed. Um, for us to then uh, supply into into those markets. So I am excited about the co commodity market. Um, there is an overlay of more responsibility from the producer side. I think what is important to understand is that while a lot of industries right now are battling with their balance sheets and needing to refinance, I believe the commodities and the resource industry had to go through this turmoil 10 years ago, brought about by their own hubris in terms of expanding into what was the, the China-driven commodity demand. But the balance sheets of resource companies are looking relatively healthy. And as I said, producers are being very cautious about expanding, which thus means that the supply-demand fundamentals for, I believe, all commodities is in a very good shape. It's so interesting how different this cycle is. I mean, usually what happens in these boom times is we see lots of acquisitions, we see lots of M&A activity. And Bevan Jones... That's just not happening. Well, certainly not to the extent that we've seen in, in previous boom cycles, is it? Yeah, I think especially in certain commodities. Um, so, so whilst you've seen gold and, and platinum obviously doing very well on the back of increased investor demand, um, as well as base metals, as Ilya has just, has just mentioned, things like um, coal and natural gas are really actually uh, suffering. Um, because as Ilya again pointed to, there's the investors are more looking into ESG, environmental, social and governance factors and, and impact investing. So the world is, is also focusing very much on, on CO2. So any commodity that's linked into that is, is really taking the brunt of that. And that, that's, um, quite significant for South Africa as a major coal exporter, obviously. So investors are few and far between in, in that space and, and people are having to look much more towards private equity deals traders coming in with um, offers of, of offtake and, and, and private financing, etc. And the banks obviously have become a lot more circumspect as well because, you know, everyone is being driven by effectively the, the effects on climate. Elon Musk the other day tweeted that he's looking for nickel, but he wants clean nickel. So he's going to struggle a little bit. I mean, most of the nickel, decent nickel out there is in Indonesia, <clears throat> but the Indonesian government has been quite clever and they're not letting anyone export uh, nickel ore. So he will have to build a Tesla factory in Indonesia to be able to, um, mm. you know, export the finished product, which is what they're after. That's something that South Africa should probably try and focus on more as well is the beneficiation of our own ores. Are, are we seeing, I mean, governments generally getting smarter about this, saying, hold on a second, I have a rare commodity. I have a commodity that the world wants. Let me start dictating the terms of export. You can export a finished product. You can't export the raw material. I mean, what options would there be for South Africa, Bevan, in terms of what we have that the world 
doesn't have the world we have some platinum we have good reserves of platinum but there's platinum elsewhere we don't have much we don't have any gold left and that's not useful in industry what industrial commodities do we have that we could leverage yeah i think for the new economy the climate change economy platinum nickel uh, copper as you mentioned um chrome those are all strong for us manganese and we can look at um, beneficiating those all too often Africa has suffered from producing the ores and the concentrates and then the, the finished markets are all in Europe. So the, the, the LME, the London Metals Exchange, the three-month contract was because it took three months to ship ore from somewhere in South America or Africa to London, which is where all the buyers are. So really what we're trying to do at, at Source Markets is, is to create local commodity market prices, Af African commodity market prices, so that junior miners can benefit instead of traders coming in and, and, and really taking all that margin and offshoring the product profits. We want to see our junior miners benefiting from that. So I think in those commodities that we mentioned, we, we've got a we've got a significant advantage. But then also into into our neighbors in, in Africa, there's there's more manganese in Botswana, there's lithium in Zimbabwe and plenty of chrome and nickel as well. So I think we, we can really look at becoming a, a hub if we put our minds together um, and we created um, sort of beneficiation points in the region. We could we could really do this quite cleverly, yeah. And we put our minds and our minds uh, together as well. Thank you, Bevan Jones. Uh, Tawana Madodo, um, what's your perspective on this? I mean, you've got a very uh, effervescent Ilya Graulich, a, a concerned Bevan Jones, I think. I'm not too sure that he's as bullish about the commodity cycle, but he sees opportunities in specific green uh, commodities. What's your perspective on it? Just from what Bevan was saying, I mean, just touching on that, um, I think we are in a boom as we currently in this current COVID environment. But I think we shouldn't get too excited because I do think um, some of the price uh, trajectory upwards is really around what's happening um, with the COVID environment, what's happening from a supply uncertainty perspective. Um, you know, you, you can like look at what's driving some of the commodities like copper. Um, you know, it's, it's really to, to, to a large extent on the premise of the is supply concerns, given what's happening in South America. Yes, there is a big uh, stimulus package happening in China. So I think one the way we should look at these prices is, you know, one day um, we will get out of this COVID environment. Um, but the question is, where are we going to reset or what's going to be our base? Um, and from our perspective, from a bank, that's how we'll be evaluating opportunities where people prospectively are coming looking for funding is post-COVID, what's the new base in order to assess um, the competitive nature of the various projects? Uh, Shirley Weber, from your perspective, I mean, as a bank, bankers by nature uh, are conservative. They worry about the risks. Miners by their nature are people who like to go and dig holes in inaccessible places on the promise of a reward and into the future. Um, how is this balance going to work out in an environment where Tawanda suggests that we've got artificially uh, inflated prices as a result of short-term supply constraints that invariably are going to come off um, as we see infection rates drop or as we see vaccines developed to fight COVID-19? What is your perspective on it? Thanks, Bruce. Um, for me, we obviously have existing, you know, minds out there. Um, and as Bevan and Ilya has both mentioned, um, you know, they're looking carefully at um, expansionary capex. Um, efficiency is more important now. Cash flow preservation. 
um, is at the order of the day. So what we are foreseeing and already starting at this point in time are more and more projects being looked at, not necessarily for developing now, but making sure that in the 12 to 18 months, um, you know, that the companies are ready to actually take advantage as soon as demand is picking up for those commodities as well. Um, like you've rightly mentioned at the beginning, we've seen copper keeping its own um, as well as iron ore. However, we've seen in the last week as well that iron ore is dropping um, in prices. Um, and and that's, a, that's a bit of an odd phenomena because of what Tawanda has mentioned on the Chinese and the requirement for, from the Chinese government, you know, for iron ore and, and steel, etc. I do think um, for our African continent, and we've seen it where we've got our APSA, um, you know, um, activities in many of the countries, that if there's no political stability and a regulatory environment that's very clear, um, that investors will not necessarily go into those countries and, and help economic growth and surely growth for all our African countries are of the utmost importance. Talk to me about the regulatory environment in countries. I mean, South Africa controversially um, has had multiple attempts at regulatory regimes which have been disastrous under uh, Mosa Benzizwane, who was briefly South Africa's mineral resources minister. It was impossible uh, to ever consider investing in South Africa again. Uh, we've had Gweda Mantashe as Minister of Mineral Resources for two years now, and still one gets the sense that there hasn't been sufficient progress in South Africa when it comes to uh, certainty around policy. Just how much certainty do we have first, uh, Shirley Weber, in South Africa versus other countries on the continent, perhaps taking this opportunity a bit more seriously? What we've seen um, over the last few years as well, and I think I've mentioned this a few times, I think there's a positive sentiment on South Africa. Um, you know, the, the, the mining charter, as well as the petroleum charter, fuel charter, and everything, you know, regulation-wise that's coming out, I think is becoming more clearer. Um, I do think with some of the gas fines that we've seen um, on the Western Cape side, um, that it's all positive. So um, from, a, from a bank point of view, I think we are definitely more positive about, you know, the certainty of regulations. I think in Africa, there's one or two precedents that's been um, set, um, you know, where government involvement, um, for example, is increasing up to a 50% level. Um, and I do think as well, um, economic growth for the countries is one thing, um, but you need the investors to go in, obviously make sure that everyone's got fair and equitable shares of profit, etc. Um, and that's why sanity needs to prevail when it comes to fiscal regimes, um, you know, royalty taxes, etc. And we've seen um, a few countries, for example, like Zambia, I think we, we, we're positive about that. Um, we've seen um, countries like Tanzania, for example, you know, we, we, and we all know this, Barrick has struck a deal, uh, you know, with, with the government, um, you know, for um, owning 50% of their mines where there were issues in the past on, on tax uh, disputes, etc. So 
I do think each and every country need to evaluate very carefully what they would like to achieve at the end of the day, because it, uh, the, all the communities need to benefit as well. And it doesn't take anything away from sustainability, because sustainability, and, and sorry, it's quite a big word, um, sustainability doesn't just mean carbon emissions. It means, you know, things for us like APSA. It should be zero hunger. It should be education. It should be, you know, carbon emissions. It, it, sustainability is quite a big word. And, and we would like to think that, um, you know, as part of our role into Africa, that we contribute to all of those as we look at certain projects and the way that we fund them and making sure that we are responsible in lending um, out to those various projects. Uh, I mean, is it easier to do business in South Africa as a mining company than it was five years ago, 10 years ago, 15 years ago? Is South Africa boxing smarter than perhaps it has in the past? I think it was always possible to do business because we have essentially a constitution that that enforces and entrenches laws and, and, and the legal system that allow you to challenge um, what some people may have thought were not the correct applications of law. So I think that's an important factor to consider. I think it was more the PR around how things were handled previously that um, meant there was lack of investment. And I think we're also still suffering from some of the legacy issues where South Africa was dominated by large mining houses and we simply did not have the culture of junior mining companies coming in. And that culture is not just from an operational perspective where you do have, as you described, um, quite aggressive mining companies, very keen to start digging a hole wherever they, they think it's possible. And um, it also stems from the providers of capital and the providers of capital both being equity and debt side, where we have traditionally not seen um, the large funds um, and, and the banks come in and support the junior mining sector. That has changed. Um, and that certainly means that there are more entrepreneurial companies coming into the South African space and trying matters. We've seen success stories. Um, let me blow our own trumpet. It's quite important. We have seen success stories on Chrome and Platinum, as Teresa has shown. We are a, a product of the new mining code, so we had to be fully empowered before we received licenses. Yes, there was a major shareholder providing capital, but we did receive very good support from the capital markets, particularly on the debt side to start building the mine where we created 2,000 new jobs. You've seen success stories on the manganese side, and you've seen success stories on the coal side where I guess um, the certainty of a supply contract from an ESCOM for particular BE companies has meant that new entrants were able to come into, come into the market. So it's been a very uh, positive swing, and, and I think we can build on this. There are opportunities all across um, the sector. You've seen opportunities um, coming up in, in the copper space in South Africa that is being supported by the capital markets. Um, and hopefully we can build on, on that. So it has certainly changed. Um, and I think importantly, the tone, both from the industry, through the Minerals Council, the industry individually, and obviously from the government, they, they do want to see investment. Um, and we're certainly moving in the right steps on that side. But it's still harder than it should be, right? Yeah. Look, it's 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 never easy. Um, you know, I think way. that's that's you the important factor I mean, to consider. Um, 
but it's not not easy in any other places. Um, over the last week, if you followed what's going on in North America, a major project, um, great from an engineering point of view, great from various other scenarios, they're now hitting stumbling blocks on some of the social issues and that share price has collapsed of that company. So it's not easy and that, to be quite frank, is one of the reasons why I remain bullish on commodity prices. As much as we are looking at projects um, as an industry and, and surely address those as an industry as we move on, those projects we know will take longer to come to the market than uh, what any bullish scenario shows. So the underpin from a supply-demand fundamental, in my view, remains very, very balanced um, for strong commodity prices. It's a good argument. Tawanda, I mean, when you look at the, the duration between discoveries of commodities, let's, for example, just take the Brill butter. I don't know when that discovery happened. It happened years ago. And just in the last couple of weeks, we've seen the deep sea scavenger make its way around Cape Town and it's going to go and find itself into the middle of the um, South Indian Ocean. And then that's when the real work begins. I mean, this is... From conception to actualization, I mean, these things take years of planning, of fortitude, of hard work, of funding. Uh, and somehow we don't seem to grasp the nettle on these things. We don't seem to grasp the sense of urgency when it comes to getting new projects on stream, do we? No, you're right, Bruce. Um, you know, <clears throat> from a timing perspective, these things really do take time. I mean, just by way of example, I mean, you know, um, for some of the platinum mines, just to actually start um, getting to profitability, just given you know how deep they generally are, I mean that that can take you a period of about um, seven years. So I mean, in in that seven year period, you pretty much need um, a whole lot of commitment, um, you know, from a capital perspective. Um, you, you need support from, I think, a whole myriad of factors. So you know, like you talk about. What is government support, um, you know, uh, from a regulatory perspective, um, you know, in, in, that in, in that environment? And you really are looking at how do you incentivize people to, to slug it out for that seven-year period? And some of those breaks come, you know, from, you know, tax breaks, um, which you can maybe roll over and then claim once you start mining. Well, it takes a huge and long time and a huge commitment. Shirley, I saw your head almost nodding off its shoulders just a moment ago as I was talking about um, the, 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 the amount of time that it takes to get projects to market. I mean, do you get a sense that there is an acceptance amongst the regulators that this is not a, a 2020 cricket game or a, a, even a 50 over one day test? Uh, this is a proper Ashes series over 100 years game, perhaps. Look, Bruce, um, you know, for, for any new development, uh, exploration obviously is over and done with. For example, with Brulpada, there will always be, you know, um, new fields around it, you know, that can form part, you know, of that discovery. But the reality is um, we should realize that it's on the Western Cape side, um, you know, the, the weather, you know, the seas, the, the depth. Everything plays a very big role in, you know, how companies can progress, you know, to to make it um, quicker. If I look at, for example, in Ghana, um, you know, when we funded Jubilee, um, the Jubilee field, for example, you know, from discovery to first production was five years. And that was extremely quick. 
Um, so when we um, dealt with clients like Cosmos, for example, there that was very that's obviously very big on the on the Jubilee side. You know, five years was a such a dramatic um, achievement. You know, for for the wider um, oil and gas community. So. It does take a while for those things to be um, fully developed. Bevan Jones, tell me about risk appetite for Africa projects across our continent, because this continent is rich in so many resources. And you mentioned some of the really uh, rare minerals that are in under African soil that are imminently exploitable in this environment where the Paris Climate Change Accord demands that we are smarter about the way in which we develop our products into the future, the way we consume, the way we develop. Uh, but this African continent is magnificently endowed with mineral resources. But just what is the appetite? I mean, what is the, the, the risk appetite right now for African projects? We are, we are still well endowed and we, and we have a very wide range of um, resources still available to us. Um, unfortunately, I think Africa still gets hit by this risk on, risk off sort of sheep mentality that most investors have out there. But, but of course, you have your traders who are all over Africa with boots on the ground looking for these opportunities. Um, and and they, they, they tend to be very bullish and, and, and risk, um, uh, pro-risk. Uh, China, of course, is, has always been uh, prowling through Africa and, and is looking to secure its resources that it doesn't have at home. Um, so I think I think the risk mentality is still there. But earlier, to your earlier point in terms of government, they, they are not really helping. I mean, the the regulation is still muddled. We don't have a great um, cadastral uh, system in terms of uh, mapping and in terms of licensing, uh, whereas other African countries like Botswana and Tanzania, they've put it all online and, and you can go and search for who's got what mining rights and permits, etc., so it's a, it's a lot easier in many other places. Botswana, Namibia are looking at signing a five gigawatt um, renewables project between themselves and, and then possibly exporting that power into South Africa. So in many ways, South Africa is getting left behind, even though that the risk appetite is is there. So, so we really do need to try and make it easier for in, investors um, to come in to come on board. Uh, Tawanda, talk to me about macroeconomics. Talk to me about the sort of hardship that economies like the oil-dependent economies of Nigeria, for example, Angola face. And we've even seen ShopRite announce that it will withdraw from Nigeria. I mean, it it just feels like so many of these building blocks that have been put in place for so long in anticipation of this boom that will come one day are beginning to unravel a little bit and, and come off a lot based on the boom and bust cycles of commodities. In this case, the negative impact of oil, which is so critical in economies in this continent. Yeah, I, th- I think the impact has been, um, you know, quite severe. Um, you know, when you, when you look at countries like Nigeria, Angola, um, which are really dependent on, on, on oil, I mean, just given the current drop in oil prices, I think most of them are facing real uphill challenges in terms of they need a certain oil price in order to to, to balance out their budget, um, which I think currently neither Angola nor nor nor, nor Nigeria, um, being the two largest oil producers in this country, aren't able to balance their budget. Um, you know, I think the consequential effect of that really is about them having to seek um, you know alternative funding. 
I think, um, like us um, here recently in South Africa, um, you know, they'll be leaning more and more towards um, IMF funding. Um, and, you know, that also has its own consequential impacts um, in terms of, you know, there's a, a push-pull in terms of, you know, um, what IMF ideally would be advising you what to do and what you as a government from a social perspective would want to do um, in order to restructure your economy, maybe to be less dependent on 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 um, on oil. Um, you know, you you look at places as well. You know, I think some of the projects now, this current oil price, um, aren't going to be um, or, or are no longer in the top tier of priorities for some of the for some of the majors. Um, so you look at you know some of the countries in East Africa, which. We're expecting, um, you know, to, to to be getting all this new investment coming into the country in order to help out from a social social development perspective. Um, that event is pretty much being deferred out a couple of years. So, so I think, um, yeah, the the consequences aren't great, um, but I suppose it's your view in terms of when um, when you think we let's say we'll get out of this oil glut which really is, I think, at this current moment, I think the big word for, for us is really around COVID and how long are we going to be in this COVID environment or um, what is going to be the new normal in terms of uh, to reset some of these things. Uh, Shirley, how does the, the fact that the, the macroeconomics of so many African economies so negatively impacted by COVID and so many uh, of these economies that were on a path of, to recovery and we're getting people lifted out of poverty and we've seen greater stability, we've seen better democracies across so many regions of the African continent and you know, everything is moving gla at a glacial pace but moving in the right direction nice and slowly. Is COVID a serious enough setback to push back the ambitions of what is going on in terms of potential development on our continent? I, I do think um, there will be certain areas um, that would recover quite quickly. I think some has recovered already from a commodity point of view. I think, honestly, we don't have um, concerns about, you know, um, gold, platinum, etc. So I think the recovery is already building up there from a um, demand and a supply point of view. I think, um, you know, what we've seen um, in the market from a diamond and a diamond value chain, recovery of those, um, you know, value chains will take a little bit longer. Um, and we only foresee as the US and China and India opens from a uh, production point of view, as well as from a retail point of view, um, you know, that there will be a full recovery in the diamond um, value chain. And that really is from about, um, you know, mid 2021 onwards. So um, depending on the commodity, depending on who your end customer is, um, that will determine, you know, the recovery period during COVID. Your questions uh, on the question bar coming up in a couple of minutes' time. Get those through to us, please. You know how MS Teams works. You just type in your question, put your name in it if you would, and also the, uh, the person to whom you would like a question addressed if you would. What, Ilegralich, are the great opportunities for the next, I don't know, let's pick five-year term for this African continent of ours in terms of an investment cycle, in terms of an exploitation cycle, in terms of the resource cycle, where are the opportunities, do you think? Um, look, most countries start with gold. I think it's well understood. There are the opportunities, and I think once people have success stories in gold, 
um, other commodities other commodities follow. Um, obviously, they are the the prime um, elephants on the continent. Copper in in the Congo. What I think people are missing though in the Congo is that. A lot of activity has taken place on the eastern side of the Congo, on the Zambian side, the traditional area of, of, uh, of copper um, mining. You're seeing more opportunities taking place on the western side of the Congo into other Congo, i.e. Congo Republic, and moving on to the coast. So I think that's an amazing opportunity to, to consider, um, just purely from the copper perspective. Um, West Africa, again, uh, we are looking at gold as a starter. I'm not too sure what other commodities will come through um, on that side. I'm talking more sort of with the horn of West Africa. What is interesting, of course, is the iron ore side. You will have seen news even this morning that there is a very high-level government um, delegation leading the negotiations around the big Simandu properties and various other opportunities that are intrinsically linked to the success of the iron ore mining. But more importantly, we need to get the infrastructure right in that side of the continent in order for the iron ore to be exported. So I see that as, as a very interesting um, scenario. But that's not junior mining. That is um, taken into, into its fold by big majors, um, the Rios of this world, and obviously the Chinese state-owned entities that are looking at those areas. What is the unknown, and I think we are missing a trick on the continent with regards to gas and oil. I think the opportunities still remain on that side, um, and we do have opportunities to to continue to exploit gas on on that. And what is important is that the downstream opportunities on both oil and gas, um, I'm talking about electricity production, for example, are well understood. So we don't need to reinvent the wheel. There are systems in place that could very quickly convert some of the gas that we have on the coast very quickly into electricity. And that then hopefully will foster what you addressed earlier is the, the, uh, the economic growth that these countries so desperately require. So I see the base metal um, being driven on the continent through copper because copper is, is something that is being searched for permanently. Obviously, in the industries that we operate in, both chrome and manganese, it is part of the broader stainless steel complex. The world needs stainless steel and chrome and manganese come from South Africa, 85% of the world's supply. And I think that's an opportunity that we need to consider um, from that perspective. And then, as I said, I believe in iron ore on the coast of Africa and in oil and gas. Yeah, I mean, and there is an inevitability, Bevan Jones, almost, of the huge pressures on manufacturers of everything from these devices to more useful devices in the that the rare commodities that you talk about, whether that be the lithiums, the chromes, the cobalts, the graphites, for example, manganese, all of these things that fall outside of the, the, the mainstream hubbub and excitement of the investable assets of platinum and palladium and gold and all of these lovely commodities that we hear about every day. Those are the opportunity sets, perhaps, for this continent. Yeah, indeed, and especially for the you know the new clean clean tech and the future tech economy that we're looking into. I think a big opportunity for South Africa or in Africa is the hydrogen economy. So um, you know we may see sterilized coal resources underground, which then can then be utilized through say something like underground coal gasification. <clears throat> yes, that will produce brown hydrogen or dirty hydrogen, but the point is it's still possible. 
Um, and of course, um, platinum fuel cells um, to to four hydrogen fuel cell cars or for power generation, or, or, or probably more importantly for cars, is is going to be trucks, uh, long distance trucks running on hydrogen tanks. So I think we we, we may even skip the net gas, the, the natural gas um, move, and I wouldn't be too bullish on natural gas, but the hydrogen economy is definitely one to look at. And, and there the coal miners should be getting together with the platinum miners and they should really be exploring um, opportunities. The other thing is, I think, um, rehabilitation of mines and reprocessing waste, um, whether it's from tailings or whether it's from refineries and smelters. Um, and we've got a, obviously we've got a huge opportunity there to do a, a proper cleanup um, and that leads into things like the just transition and, and creating jobs around uh, mines that are closing down, etc. Because it's not always easy to, you know, get the primary commodity out of the ground. Um, you talk any, anywhere going underground. We've talked about the long lead times, the easy open pits where you can just scrape the little bit of dirt away and get the product are, are no longer there really. So I think we've got to really start getting a lot smarter about how we clean up after ourselves, but then also target which are the um, strategic minerals that we should really be focusing on. And then for those strategic minerals, let's create aggregation points and let's create beneficiation points so that we can actually benefit from the prices instead of just being um, price takers for the basic ores. Um, so I think there's there's definitely a huge opportunity, but we've really got to get a little bit smarter about things. Um, the green economy is one aspect of this, Shirley Weber, but I mean, there's a huge amount of constraint that's also put on the resources industry by the Paris Climate Change Agreements, by the fact that it becomes a lot more complicated, a lot more costly, a lot more difficult, a lot more time consuming yeah. to remove some of these minerals than perhaps, you know, our forefathers cared for as they found themselves a kimberlite pipe in the middle of the desert. They just started digging and damned the consequences. There was no consequence. So, uh, today, this mining industry is a lot more complicated. Does it come with, with with positives and negatives, or is this just an additional burden that falls on the mining industry? No, thanks, Bruce. I think it's actually um, I think it's it's more to the positive side. It becomes a question of every company mining metal, oil and gas, even the trading side. Do we have the responsibility in ensuring that whatever we do, that we, we do leave a green footprint, um, you know, back when we over and done with it? So, um, you know, with the, with the Paris Agreement, I mean, that's really because of the global response to the, the effect that climate change can actually have on our world, we all have to be responsible in the way that we, we, we look at, um, you know, um, getting the minerals and metals, you know, out from the ground. They cannot be exploitation anymore. It must be done responsibly. So what we've seen more and more in all the financials of all of the companies that we deal with, there's more transparency about what they are doing you know, with um, carbon emissions, do they have an action plan for carbon emissions? And clearly, if you look at most of the oil and gas companies that we deal with um, in Africa, there's a clear guideline from all of them to say that they need to work towards a more renewable um, a mix of um, energy as well. So there will always be oil. Will they 
um, focus more rather on gas going forward because that is a bit greener, um, you know, than oil. Clearly, that would be the case. Um, but we've seen even going down the line, many of the oil and gas companies are, are looking at the renewables, the wind, the solar, um, etc. as well. Um, for me, the, um, you know, the, the LNG um, discoveries or the gas discoveries that led to LNG um, setups, for example, in Mozambique, etc., is actually quite positive because all of the LNG, etc., can be used for, for energy, which in a way is much cleaner than many of the traditional um, you know, um, fossil fuels that we've seen and that we've um, obviously are used to in Africa, because that's where we are in Africa. So there will always be a mix of um, um, type of energy sources that we'll have to use. However, if you go and look at all the European Union, some of the laws that they've brought into action, you know, put to put um, guidelines down to uh, make sure that renewable sources are becoming a more and more of an electricity source. That's things that we'll have to look at. We can't just do one specific type of funding anymore. It will be a mix, especially because of where we sit in Africa. There's water, there's coal, there's wind, there's solar. We'll have to do it differently. Um, thank you, Shelley Weber. I think this one, Bevan Jones, may be for you. It's from Charlotte. Charlotte's been paying attention, unlike the rest of you, and she sent us a question. But please, how could you? Uh, we're going to be wrapping up in the next couple of minutes, and uh, if you don't get your questions in now, you're not going to get them answered. Uh, Charlotte's question about vanadium. I don't even know what vanadium is, but you will know, Bevan Jones. Is it an answer for sustainable, renewable energy? I think vanadium comes into its own in terms of, uh, I think we're looking at redox batteries. So definitely on the battery storage side, um, people like Bushveld Minerals are doing very good work there. So I, I do think that is an opportunity for us. Um, vanadium, we, we obviously have some vanadium in the country, so that's great for us, but it's, it's a little bit few and far between. So I, th I think if the tech really improves, vanadium could be a, a really good one to look at, yeah, on the battery side. Ilya Gralich, earlier on you were talking about logistics and the complexity and what the big advantage is for established players on our continent in terms of the huge complexity of moving supplies in and materials out. And you were just talking about COVID-19 and the complexity that has caused in terms of the logistics of getting products out to market. I mean, just talk to me about some of that complexity, if you would. Look, um, there's a number of role players, I think, for starters, that needs to be that needs to be considered. So, um, you know, mining is capital intensive at the best of times. So you need to start looking at some kind of cooperation or use existing infrastructure in order to move your products. Um, Bevan addressed uh, an interesting point where cooperation is important. So. Um, in Australia, the big iron ore guys started developing their own railway lines for their own use. Um, when smaller players wanted to come in, the government had to step in to say, well, let other guys make use of it. Because the simple snowball effect of having more industry um, from an economic point of view, I think, is evident to everyone. So I think that's an important aspect to consider. Um, Africa, the African continent, simply lacks infrastructure. Um, that's the important factor to consider. So um, even in South Africa, we've moved away from a transnet that was very efficient. Um, and I think the private sector is even to willing to assist 
Transnet and some kind of public-private partnership to expand their network. Um, just the regulation and the bureaucracy has meant that these things haven't been that easy. Has meant that um, other industries have sprung up. So the trucking industry has grown from a logistics point of view, um, and that's great in order to get your product to the coast if you don't have railway allocation. But that means um, the existing road network suffers because there's too many trucks on the road. So there's pros and cons in terms of looking at those scenarios. More to COVID, um, apart from the infrastructure that we are lacking on the continent, has meant that um, because of social distancing, not that many people coming to to work, right down to sailors for ships not being able to get to their ships because they can't be moved around as efficiently through airlines, has meant that you are battling to find space on a ship. So you better have your own logistics um, division or you better be logistically very smart to make sure that you can get your product onto a ship, load that ship very quickly, and that that ship reaches your end customer um, as fast as possible because that then starts affecting your cash flow. So um, logistics has been a challenge throughout this whole COVID scenario with very specific areas where um, industries that supply logistics have not worked as efficiently because of, of the lack of manpower. Um, but logistics on the African continent remains a massive challenge. you just got to look at it geographically. How do you move copper out of the central um, Congo? Um, where is the nearest coastline? And then once you've found the nearest coastline, start counting the number of harbors that are available for export, and you will be lucky to find the number of five, both on the east and on the west side of the continent, that are able to take these large ships. So um, that remains a massive, massive concern for me on the continent and will require a lot of capital to be spent um, in order to get that up to the, uh, to the right levels. Talk to me about, Ilya, if you would, local security. Um, the insurgency in northern Mozambique, for example, question talking about implications yep. on local security issues and investment, um, as we see northern, uh, the northern Mozambique impacting LNG plans there. I mean, the local security across the continent, uh, occasionally there's just an eruption of rigorous excitement mm-hmm. in different parts of the continent. Right now, northern Mozambique has got to be in your crosshairs. Yeah, look, I think security remains a concern in in a lot of countries around the world. Um, mining is a frontier business. I think that's that's something that we need to consider. And as much as you addressed a retailer earlier who um, grew their business on along the west coast of Africa on the back of the mining and oil boom, if it wasn't for the frontier industries such as mining, um, nobody would put up a supermarket or a cell phone network or provide beer to these areas because there simply wouldn't be any demand. So security remains part of the equation. Um, I think governments are well aware of the problem. Often these governments, it's a sort of a chicken and egg scenario that they find themselves in for the simple reason that um, they'd like the investment and they need the investment to uh, improve the government, um, improve I'm talking about the government improving the government across the sector, but at the same time, um, that's not going to take place because the lack of investment, because there is no security. As I said, it's a chicken and egg scenario that you need to consider. Um, certainly, the the media has brought the problem to to the attention. I think of the broader public. Um, one has to hope that the governments have the ability to manage these situations. But to be frank, Mozambique has been a bit of a uh, hot cauldron for, for some time. 
following the end of the civil war, there was investment taking place. Um, BHP um, or Billiton slash Gencore were in there very early on the aluminium side. Other investments started taking place on the uh, on the coal side, on the graphite side, and obviously we're, we're on, on the gas side. Um, and one just simply hopes that these things will settle down. But it is of concern. Again, it boils down to my earlier scenario, supply and demand. It is going to be very, very difficult to bring all that supply that the demand curve demands into the market because of non-engineering factors that we are dealing with, um, soft issues such as um, ESG. Um, and I'm not saying that's a soft issue, but I'm talking about a non-engineering issue, right down to security matters, right down to providing of capital, and then the overlay of COVID, which will simply mean that things will take much longer. As I said earlier, projects will take longer to, to be developed. Thank you, Elia. Bevan, question for you uh, from somebody who doesn't identify themselves, but what does the future of gold hold? Short term and long term to bevan perhaps is the question i mean to think that a kilogram of gold which is no more than this cell phone um is over a million rand a kilogram it's astonishing as gold rocketed to what two thousand and fifty dollars an ounce and has pulled back now closer to to 1900 once again but um we expect huge volatility but gold feels like it needs a crisis to hold on to otherwise the world loses interest fairly quickly what's your perspective well, I think I think it's interesting. Obviously, you, you've seen gold rally, and and platinum has maybe been left a little bit behind. Um, silver has also outperformed significantly because, you know, I, I think people have looked at gold and they've realised that it's it's always kept its value ever since Egyptian days, or ever since the pharaohs of Kush first got their gold from the mines of Ethiopia. Um, so I, I think it's it's definitely rallied on on fear, um, but it's also rallied just on the sheer amount of quantitative easing that is coming to the market, and you know a lot of that is coming to cryptocurrencies that have that are backing themselves with gold. There's there's thousands of tokens out there, and and then Bitcoin has also rallied because all of that has now been sold, pump and dump, and then sold into Bitcoin. So every single asset class has, has really rallied. Gold was clearly going to hit the the two thousand dollar technical level, um, but since then has has fallen back. Yeah, um, and I, I have no doubt that it will go back above two thousand before the end of the year, most likely, um, and continue going up. It will always keep its value as a as a hedge against inflation. Um, whether we actually get inflation in this new economic world that we're living in is is another question. Um, but certainly things like gold and bricks and mortar. Yeah. There are those that argue that inflation is dead. And if inflation is dead, which I don't believe for a moment, I just think it's in a deep slumber. But if inflation is dead, then gold surely is doomed or not. I'm, I'm not sure. I think it's also in a deep slumber. And I think it's going to come, it's going to come back like a thief in the night. Uh, Ilya, uh, you, 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 you think it's funny or you're agreeing or you think you're an idiot? I'm not too sure which. I can't read your expression. No, no, no I certainly don't think that. Um, maybe, no, um, no I, I don't think. Look, there is right now, um, I think we're dealing with a very complex environment. Um, but as, as, as young as I am or as old as I am, I've also seen things revert back to the mean. Um, and I think that's an important factor to consider while we do have these outliers, the simple supply demands, the fundamentals of, of balancing itself out will come back to an extent. How long that will take? I don't, I don't know. 
Um, do I have gold in the portfolio? Yes. I mean, I worked in gold mining for a very long time. I still enjoy it. I still enjoy the metal. There is an allure to it, and I understand why why people hold on to it in terms of a store of value. So I think that's a consideration to look at. Um, economic growth, uh, growth, basic economic fundamentals means that we will need some kind of, of inflation or economic needs to be reinvented. Um, and, and economic growth needs to take place without inflation. So I'm not too sure um, inflation is dead. What we have seen, though, just as much as we spoke about various different financing taking place for the mining industry, traditionally used to go to the equity market or the debt market. You now have traders coming in. You have private equity coming in. What you have seen is people looking for alternative areas of putting their money um, rather than traditionally gold, which was there because that was the only mean. And Bevan addressed that cryptocurrency is one of them. And there are other ways of, of storing your, your money somewhere. And then, of course, this world is 30, 40, 50 years older with an incredible amount of wealth. Um, and um, that wealth simply keeps on keeps on growing. So the, the safe haven of a gold still is there, but you're not seeing the flood of capital going in there because they have other avenues open to themselves. Tawanda, give me a perspective as we wrap up then uh, this session with uh, APSA Insights. Give me a, a picture of the best possible future you see for the resources market. I, I think from, from my perspective, um, and I'll probably contextualize it from an African perspective. Um, I think we did touch a bit on that. So, I mean, the price is the price, um, but, you know, there are four key fundamentals which one needs to look at um, in order to, to determine whether these projects or these investment opportunities really hold their own. I mean, I think a lot, a lot has been spoken around logistics, um, and, and my view around that is, you know, we talk about this cycle and what we are going to do with this cycle, let's say, of this commodity boom. Um, I think they're shining examples whereby you look at a Botswana, whereby they have used what they um, endowed in, which is diamonds, um, in order to, to build up the economy. And I think so we need to, in a sense, um, I think come up with a concrete plan and not just leave it always to, to the mining houses to, to deal with these logistical challenges. I think Africa has, you know, as we said, uh, well endowed in resource. We pretty much have every resource out there in the world. So I think whatever the cycle is, I think we always um, have a seat at the table in terms of being relevant um, with regards to those commodities. Um, you know, w when you pretty much look at the labor, I mean, Africa is a young population, young, hungry people wanting to get out there, work hard. So, you know, I think that gives us a competitive advantage. I mean, if you look at where demand is going to be in years to come, um, you know, we need to have beneficiation here in Africa because really the demand, I think, in years to come um, is going to be pretty much off the back of this young, growing population of, of, of Africa. Um, and, and, and the last thing which I just wanted to touch on is just on um, electricity. Um, you know, I think we do need to develop these um, renewable energy sources which in, in some cases are cheaper than the traditional energy sources. Um, and I think, you know, when you look at all four of these factors, you know, where I see mining, especially in Africa is, I think we're able to tick off some of these now. Um, and I think we'll be able to tick some of them in, in time to come. And so I'm very optimistic in terms of 
mining in, in, in Africa going forward. Thank you very much, Tawanda. And then, uh, Shirley, a question to you from Sumesh Naidu, saying, with the discovery of hydrocarbons, for example, at Brolpada, has the market sentiment increased for investment in South Africa's offshore waters? Um, I do think currently it's too early to tell to what extent there would be investments, you know, happening, you know, into the into the South African um, country as well from from, you know, many of the investors out there. The reality is um, um, it, it can happen. We've done it before. Some of the resources obviously run out. Um, now there's new discoveries. Um, we need our government, our Department of Mineral Resources and Energy to work with the investors to make sure we do get those investments in. Because otherwise, South Africa is going to be left behind with many of the other discoveries that's out there. And that includes Mozambique, that includes Mauritania, Senegal, you know, countries that is, is definitely sitting with a lot of gas um, um, uh, reserves uh, that we've seen um, as well. So I do think there's commitment needed from all shareholders for responsible um, development, you know, of, of our natural resources, and it will lead to energy. Uh, Ina Granich, a wrap from you in terms of, I mean, the, it's the, uh, the age-old issue, I suppose, of risk and reward. Um, this continent is full of opportunities, and there are uh, risks everywhere. But I suppose that is the, the wonder and the joy and the excitement and the what drives people like yourself um, to keep working in this industry is the fact that there is always opportunity despite um, all of the obstacles that are often put in put in your way. Yeah, and, and maybe naively I believe in the goodness of mankind. You know, um, I certainly have had absolute nothing but pleasure working in some of the amazing destinations on this continent. Yes, they are far and exotic and, um, you know, maybe the infrastructure is not what you expect to, to see. And it's certainly not a Santon when you, when you go up there, but if you look at the willingness of the people and yes, there are government obstacles that you have to deal with, but if you come with the right attitude, the rewards are absolutely amazing. Um, you know, I've worked in, in, in the Congo that's been, an absolute pleasure in both Congos to to operate in there. We've operated in Rwanda. We've we have and are operating in Zimbabwe, which is um, yes, it has its economic problems. Don't get me wrong, I understand that. But the impact that you can make as an investor, um, just in your in your local area, and then obviously on a much larger scale, is is very rewarding. And we continue to invest in South Africa. You know, we're just about to spend another billion rand on our operations here. So we do see those opportunities. Um, and, and as I said, the rewards are there, not just financially, but I think on a broader benevolent side, you do see the impact that you make um, if you come with the right attitude. And, and I see that as, as, for me personally, something that I'd like to continue with for, for a long time to come. Bevan Jones, last word to you. In terms of the opportunity set, where does it sit? I think there's a whole new industry to be had in terms of restoration and rehabilitation in the mining industry. I mean, you've, you've got things like phyto mining, which is using plants which accumulate heavy minerals. Um, you've, you can you can make compost with Eskom's fly ash in their big dumps, etc. So, you know, we we we've, we just need. I, I wish we could take the thinking that that drives, say, tech stocks, and apply that to mining and and come up with 
whole new opportunities. Um, even whilst we're still going after our primary primary minerals, we, we should be doing both at the same time. I think the future is pretty bright. Lady and gentlemen, thank you very, very much indeed for being with us today. Shirley Weber, the Head of Coverage of Natural Resources and Energy, Tawando Madondo, who is the Senior Banker for Natural Resources in Growlitch, at uh, Teresa and Bevan Jones, Chief Executive at African Source Markets. Thank you. And thank you very much, everybody, for joining us for this very special APSA Insights webinar, the expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA, has been, uh, APSA Insights brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Bank. Banking on 702 and Cape Talk and on this webinar. From me, Bruce Woodfield, thank you very much for joining us this morning. Thank you for your questions. Thank you for your participation. We look forward to bringing you an APSA Insight in the next couple of weeks. Once again, thank you very much. Bye-bye. Expert advice and data-driven insights that unlock your business's potential. APSA Insights. Brought to you by APSA Corporate and Investment Banking. For more, visit absainsights.co.za.